Advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. and welcome to Autism Live. I am Shannon Penrod and we are webcasting to you live from the Center for Autism and Related Disorders headquarters in Tarzana, California. And I'm so thrilled to be here today on this Thursday. And I, I will tell you that uh, I'm, there are many things in life that I'm grateful for, but one of them is for, to the opportunity to have a place to speak about things that are important to me because I honestly believe that if I didn't have the opportunity to speak loudly today that my head would probably pop off and fly around all of Los Angeles. Um, you know, because sometimes things happen and it's just so maddening that you want to you want to say something, right? And I think a lot of people feel that release in Facebook and other people feel that in other directions. I'm very grateful that I have the opportunity to be here with you and that you and I can have a conversation. And if you need to pop off on this topic a little bit later on in the show, I want to welcome you to because the entire show is meant to be interactive and um, we leave room for people to be able to say what's on your mind you know, get it out there and move on. Of course, we, we want to be as productive as possible, right? But sometimes you just have to stop and say enough, right? And so we're going to be talking today about uh, this case of the 11-year-old child who, with an autism spectrum di diagnosis whose teacher uh, videotaped him after he got himself trapped in his school chair and, and what's happening around that. It's just amazing, and I have much more to say about that, and hopefully you guys have some things to say about it, too. I, I posted last night about it on Facebook, and there were some people who had different opinions about it, and I want to talk about that, too. Oh, do I want to talk about that. So, uh, get ready, because I think the top of my head may fall, fall off anyway. <laughs> we're going to keep a close eye on my blood pressure, um, and there's a lot of stuff that we have to talk about. Not just that. Uh, so, so thrilled we're going to be here with you for the next two hours in this interactive format. We welcome your opinions, your suggestions, topics that you want to hear about. You do have the ability to interact with us. Emily is going to show you some of the different ways that you can interact with us. While I remind you that our homepage is autism-live.com. When you go there, there are an array of different things that you can do. I want to encourage you to check out our blog. In fact, there's something new that's there today on the blog that I think you'll find interesting, and we'll talk more about that a little bit later on in the show, but if you want to peek, go ahead and do it. Uh, you can also, you see on the, the homepage, there is a computer screen, and if you click on the triangle that is on the computer screen, you can be watching the live show or the most recently recorded live show. And to the side of that is a long white box. You can put your cursor there right now, and you can start typing and hit enter. It will show up here on my screen, and you and I can be having a conversation all 
almost in real time. By the way, that is free. There is no login. We have no idea. You have complete anonymity. So if you want to write and say, Shannon, you're full of you know what, you absolutely can. And I won't know who you are or where you are. Uh, if you write into us, though, a lot of times when you guys are watching the previously recorded shows, you'll write in and that feature is open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now I'm thrilled about that. The difficulty is, though, if you write in about something you're watching and, and you're in real time, right, but it's recorded for us and you say, I want to know more about what she's talking about, please reference all your pronouns, who you're talking about. It, you know, say the lady who's talking about this game. I want to know more about the game where you move the pieces around and the bell rings. Uh, be as specific as possible in your questions. And then if you want us to get back to you personally, we will answer questions in the live show. But if you want us to get back to you personally, then include some private information in there and we will use it to converse with you about whatever it is that you asked and for nothing else. Uh, by the way, again, all of these features are free. There is no cost to you. We do ask, though, that you share this information with other people that you think will be interested in it. Share us on your Facebook. Uh, take a look at our YouTube channel. And if there's a video that you like there, share that on your Facebook or on your YouTube so that other people can get the word. That's the only way that we can stay in business is if people are watching, right? So all of that and ever so much more. I do like to start out the show by reminding you that I am not an expert in autism. We have a vast array of experts that we parade through this studio and via Skype. We have them on from around the world. And that's a very exciting thing. But I am not one of those experts. My credential for being able to sit in this chair and talk with you is that I'm an autism parent. By the way, I'm a former teacher, too. So when we start talking about teachers, I you know, I love to defend quality teachers, right? But there's a far cry from a quality teacher and somebody who shouldn't be allowed in a classroom. We're going to talk about that. Can you tell already my blood pressure is high? Um, but I am a former teacher and I'm a mom. I, I waited a long time to have a child and my son was diagnosed with autism at the age of two and a half. He was able to start quality ABA therapy right after his third birthday. And I have so much to pay forward, which is why I'm here in this chair. I want to make sure that you get the information that you need, whether you're a parent, teacher, practitioner, working with a, a young person on the spectrum or even an older person on the spectrum, or you yourself are on the autism spectrum. I want to tell you that there are so many resources out there. Yep, no, there aren't enough, but there are many that are out there that are wanting to help you to get to the progress that you are owed. And I want to connect you to those people, those ideas, those places that will help you to get where you are. This is not a one size fit fits all journey, right? What's appropriate for my son and what's appropriate for my family isn't necessarily what's appropriate for you and your circumstances. But I hope that through the time that we spend with you and through the questions that you ask and the suggestions that you make, that we can provide that 360 degree view of autism that will help you to pick and choose the, the different the avenues that you want to go down to get to that progress. But the one thing that we know for sure is that progress is available for all of us, all of us. And that includes all of the individuals who are on the autism spectrum. We can see progress if we get hooked up with the right resources. So that's really why I'm here. It's personal with me, right? Because uh, I have so much to be grateful for. My son is now in fifth grade. By the way, he is the same age as this young man who 
who was stuck in his chair. So uh, if he's, I'm hepped up about it. it. It really is close to home to me in so many different ways. And um, my child, I, I'm happy to say, is in a completely, typically, I think as this young man is included fifth grade, um, but he has a teacher who would never make fun of him if he were to be trapped into his chair and I'm and and if she did she would first of all she would never and she certainly wouldn't videotape it and email it to colleagues all right we are going to talk about that and ever so much more in just in a little while but we have business to take care of before we do that we like to start every show with something I fondly refer to as the jargon of the day I know it's our favorite time right not that would be sarcasm this is the time of day when we take on one word one phrase one acronym and we try to make sense of what these terms mean in our new new world of autism. A lot of times they're words that either we've never heard before or a word that we hear all the time. We just don't know what they mean in the context of autism, right? And today is one of the, the latter. The word today is generalization, right? Uh, and we're probably going to be using the term generalization when we talk about this teacher a little bit later on because it's a word that we use. It's not good to make sweeping generalizations, right? Isn't that a phrase that we've heard on and off our whole lives. But that's not the kind of generalization that we're talking about when we talk about autism and ABA. So let's take a look first at the actual definition of generalization as it applies to ABA and autism. It is the occurrence of relevant behavior under different non-training conditions, i.e. across subject settings, people, behaviors, and or time, without the scheduling of the same events in those conditions. And ladies and gentlemen, this is why we take on the jargon, because this definition, I don't know, maybe your IQ is higher than mine, but this is useless to me. I look at this and go, what has this got to do with my child and what I'm trying to accomplish on a daily basis? Huh? What? All right. And this is why we do the jargon of the day. Okay, so let's move on to our working definition, something that's a little less specific that will give all the board-certified behavior analysts hives, um, but maybe will help us to understand and get to the progress that we need to see. Generalization is being able to apply what has been learned in new ways or situations that were never taught. Okay. Some of the examples that I like to give for generalization, um, when when we're trying to teach, we, we start out and we're going to teach, let's go with toilet training, and then I'll give you some other examples too. When we're going to teach toilet training, and I said this on Tuesday, that before we start to teach something, we have to stop and consider how we're going to teach it, how we're going to check to see whether we actually taught it, and we always have to plan for generalization before we start teaching right? Because it's going to make a difference down the road. Toilet training is a great, great example. So we're going to sit there and we're going to say, well, I, you know, I want to teach toilet training to this child. This child learns through this method. So I'm going to use this method and I need to plan for generalization because I don't want this child to only go to the bathroom in one bathroom with one person helping them, right? That would not be success. And how many times have we all heard of somebody that toilet trains a child and they go, well, we were successful. The child is toilet trained now, but there's some place, they're at Sam's Club and all of a sudden they go, oh, we got to go home because Bobby has to go to the bathroom and he can't go to the bathroom in a public bathroom. He'll have a tantrum. And, you know, I mean, this is a very real thing. And it's a failure 
to plan for generalization. So we sit down and we decide, okay, we're going to teach toilet training to this child and we're going to use the Fox Nazarin method, which by the way is, you know, across the board, one of the best, it is the best method for uh, toilet training. And, you know, we're going to customize it to this child's individual learning style. But how we're going to plan for generalization is after the child is able to successfully void in the bathroom two times, we're going to move all of our teaching to the bathroom downstairs. And that's, and so, and then we're going to make sure that they can successfully void in, in that bathroom two times. And then we're going to move all of the teaching over to Aunt Martha's. And once he, he or she can successfully void in that toilet, then we are going to plan an outing and we're going to go to Sam's Club and, and, you know, take our little timer and all our little teaching methods. And we're going to do a lot of shopping at Sam's and give them a lot of salty snacks and give them a whole bunch of water so that when they say they have to go to the bathroom and we're going to have all of our reinforcements there and we're going to go and go to the bathroom in Sam's and make sure that the child is reinforced for it because what we want is a child who knows how to go to the bathroom in any bathroom. Is there any possibility that we can teach a child what every bathroom is going to look like? It can't be done right? But if we plan for generalization from the beginning and make sure that the child has opportunities and gets reinforced, some sort of reward for doing what they need to do in different bathrooms, in different circumstances. And by the way, it's not just locations, it's people. What if Bobby can only go to the bathroom if mom is there. He can only go to the bathroom when dad is there. That's not going to be success either, right? So maybe, you know, mom and the therapist are working on it in the upstairs bathroom. And then when we shift and move it to downstairs, now dad's up. Um, and he's working on it with the therapist. And when they go to Aunt Martha's house, then Aunt Martha takes them to the bathroom and is, you know, the person who, you know, does whatever needs to be done. Um, and that we work on this in different circumstances. So very quickly, we have a child who not only has success going to the bathroom, but can go to the bathroom in any toilet. And it's no big deal. Some of the other examples, and generalization applies to every single thing that we teach. If the child can only memorize the alphabet and do it at home and can't do it standing in front of the class, then they don't really have it at the level that it's theirs, right? Generalization is when you have the skill and you can do it, and it doesn't matter where you are, what the circumstances are, and you can apply that knowledge of, of how to do it in different circumstances. Think about when we teach colors, and are you ever going to be able to teach all the different colors of blue? You can't. You can't. How many colors of blue are there? There's the blue on my phone. There's the blue on my shirt. There's blue, you know, and there's light blue and there's dark blue and there's cerulean blue and uh, green blue and all these different colors. But we need for an individual to understand what blue is, right? So we have to make sure that when we're teaching blue in the beginning, you know, it's those very basic primary colors that we're teaching, right? But we have to, especially with an individual on the autism spectrum, we have to make sure that we're varying our teaching materials so that the thing that's blue isn't always the same color of blue so that the child goes that's not blue when it's something that's a light blue and we have to vary whether it's a one uh, you know a two-dimensional thing or it's a three-dimensional thing so that a child understands that blue isn't just uh, a blue square on a piece of paper that blue can be in the shape of a triangle or it can be in the shape of a cube or it can be your bear that's fuzzy that's blue right Generalization 
is a key thing to take into consideration before you begin teaching anything. And this is one of those things I've been talking to you guys all this year about quality ABA and I said on Tuesday, and I'll say it again now that you understand what generalization is, and on Tuesday our word was mastery. So when you start to work with an ABA provider and you're talking with them and they say, oh, we're about to start this lesson with your child. Uh, we've probed to see what they know and we're going to start to teach this child and this is how the program is going to work and blah, 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 whatever, right? You want to listen, perk your ears up to hear if they're talking about the mastery criteria is, and this is how we'll plan for generalization. If you don't hear it, it may be that they're talking about it someplace other than where you are. I'm going to sneeze. Um, but ask, ask, what is our mastery criteria? so that you know, and what is, uh, how are we planning for generalization? Now, there are a couple of reasons why you should do this. First of all, because it lets them know that you're on the job, <laughs> frankly. And you know, I'm always saying to you that as a parent, I always said there, you know, it takes a team of people to work with an individual with autism, and I never want to be the weakest person on that team. I, I had that on our bathroom mirror. I will not be the weakest person on the team. So let them know, you know, you're on the job um, and that you're paying attention. But watch their response when you say to them, what's the mastery criteria and what's our plan for generalization? Because if they go, uh, uh, oh, well, um, and they start shuffling through their papers and go, well, our, um, our mastery criteria, that is not the ABA provider you want. I'm just telling you right now. That's like if somebody were to ask you what your address is. You should know, right? Um, if you are an adult who is, is watching this program, I'm not talking about if there's a kid who's watching, but if you're an adult who's watching the program, you should know what your address is. And if you don't, then, you know, we need to backtrack and we need to do some remedial stuff to get you caught up if you don't know your, now if you just moved, right? But if you've been living there for a while, you should know what your address is. And it shouldn't be something that you gotta spend a lot of time ruminating on. Um, and the same thing, this should be ingrained in your ABA provider. They shouldn't have to look anything up. They should be able to tell you, oh, our mastery criteria is this and our generalization is this. Just one of the many ways that you can tell whether you're working with somebody who knows what they're doing. Because if you don't, what will happen is your child will be continuing to learn something and wasting their time when they've already learned it. And they will, when I, when I was first told about ABA and the doctor that I asked, I said, what, you know, should I do ABA with my child? And she said, oh no, it'll turn your child into a robot. Well, what she was talking about was bad ABA where they don't plan for generalization. And believe me when I tell you that there are people who are out there who are doing that watered down. They shouldn't call it ABA, but they do. Um, it doesn't get the job done. And if you're going to do intensive behavioral intervention and you should, then you got to do it right. And generalization is how we do it right. One of the many ways that we do it right. Okay. So moving on, <laughs> I digress. I'm, I'm, I'm just all hepped up today. Okay. So, uh, we always have a question of the day for you. And uh, this week we asked you the other day, uh, what would you like to make progress on? And now I wanna know from you, where do you feel like you can't make progress? Where do you feel stuck? Where do you feel like, oh, 
you know, and I've tried this and I've tried that and it's just not going to get better. Now, this can be with you yourself or with something that you're trying to teach your child. Can I just tell you guys and just be completely honest that we, uh, I, I was so inspired yesterday with Reed Jackson, who was on our show and, and, and was just so honest and it, it made me go, you know, I just got to be more honest about things. And I, I will tell you honestly that the last year after my mom died, my ability to, I think I was coasting. I think I just was in a place where it was like, well, the status quo and let's just survive, right? Um, and then it was brought home to me. I got the kick in the pants from somebody who I love and trust who said to me, you got to pick up some threads here. There's some things that your child could be making progress on, but you, Shannon, are not doing enough. And I had given up on my son's writing his handwriting. I just had given up on it. And I was saying, you know, and it's justifiable too, because there are computers and, you know, what's he going to have to handwrite? And, um, and then I got that swift kick in the pants and I had to listen to that. And, and the person that I love and trust said he can get better at this. And I got to be honest with you that I just was like, he really can't, he really can't. That ship has sailed. And when I think about that now, there's nothing that you can't get more work done on. Sometimes though, mentally you're not in the right place and I don't think I was in the right place. We have had, seen tremendous improvement on the handwriting uh, and we were working on it every day and working on it in a very positive way and giving my son great reinforcement, going back to all the tools that we were doing and it was working. I even got a compliment from the teacher the other day that she showed the OT something he wrote and they went, my goodness, what has happened here? So I promptly stopped doing it every day because this is my MO as a parent. Uh, and I noticed it quickly. Um, we only let like three days go by where we didn't do it. I know, what are you thinking? <laughs> it's okay, judge, I need to be judged. Um, but we let three days go by and all of a sudden we're back to the crappy handwriting. And I stopped everybody in the household last night and I said, mea culpa, guess what I did again, something was working and I stopped doing it. And I, and the writing was sitting there, something that he'd done last week and something that he'd done this week. And my husband and my son were standing there and I said, I'm really sorry because I dropped the ball here and it was me. And my son said, oh, my writing really is bad again, isn't it? And I said, well, this is the writing that we want to focus on. And he said, yeah, yeah. So, and my husband went, oh my goodness, look at what the difference in three days. So, uh, I would encourage you, write in about whatever it is that you feel like you can't make progress and let's let's hunker down together and figure out how we can get your willingness back in to believe that it can be worked on and figure out the nuts and bolts of how we're gonna do it. Let's get out the tool belt, bring out the tools and let's get busy, let's make it happen. Okay, we always have a topic of the week and what's our topic this week? Can you guess? I bet you can. We're talking about making progress. Because I, I don't know about you, but I heard very distinctly, was it last week or the week before last, I, I guess it was, when Dr. Jonathan Tarbach said, we are all able to make progress every day of our lives until we die. And that counts for all of us. Those of us who are tired, those of us who feel like we just can't move on another step, that counts for our kids who have autism that other people have written off and said they're not going to be able to do that. Well, pfft, 
to them, right? We can make progress. And I love when Dr. Tarbox says, I'm really missing Dr. Tarbox today because uh, he's not here with us, unfortunately. But I love when Dr. Tarbox says, how do you need to eat an elephant? One bite at a time. So we're going to figure out what the first bite needs to be and what our plan to teach these things to ourselves is going to be so that we get to mastery and that we get to generalization, right? It all ties together. Okay, so some of the different things that we have going on in today's show uh, that, oh, and I'm, I'm past. Uh, we've got this breaking news story uh, about this teacher that we're going to be covering, and you can watch the top of my head explode. Uh, we will be talking about funding and how we get access to funding so that we can get more done. And we're really going to go in-depth talking about bullying today because some of the comments that have been made in this case with the teacher have made me so mad. And I think it's time that we take a step back and look at the word bullying. When are we using it properly? When are we overusing it, right? Uh, and I think it's really important for me as a parent to come to a good understanding of what bullying is and to teach that to my son and to my son's school. So let's take a break and we're going to be back more with Autism Live after these messages. Hello, activists. Here we are at step 10 of autism empowerment. I like to call this the three L's. Live in the now, love thyself, and laugh. First, live in the now. We have to stop on occasion to remind ourselves to be present. Because as autism parents, we're constantly planning ahead for our children's future. We miss the joys of the present moment. Don't miss out on your child's childhood. Catch the joy as it flies by. Love thyself. Never beat yourself up. And forgive yourself for the things you wish you'd done or the things you think you've done wrong. No one can make you feel inferior without your consent. Eleanor Roosevelt said that. Be a good role model of self-esteem for your child. It affects them. And finally, don't forget to laugh. Despite all the trials and tribulations in this world of autism, it is still a beautiful world and often a very funny one. I try to surround myself with friends and family who make me smile and laugh every day. Heard any good jokes lately? Pass them on. Until next time, keep the faith. I want to take just a couple of minutes to talk about funding because so often I say that we're going to talk about funding and we run out of time. You guys ask questions and I want to get to your questions um, and we don't end up having time to talk about funding. So um, I. I want to just take a minute to talk about the state of where we are in terms of insurance and uh, Affordable Care Act, that right now everything is different than it was three months ago. So if you think you know and you think you understand the status of your coverage, I want to lovingly and gently say to you, you may not. You may not know everything that there is to know. In fact, it's far more likely that something important has changed and that every minute that you don't know what's happening is time that you are losing and perhaps a great deal of money that you are losing. So 
it's very important that you take a look at what your current status is for funding. If you live in, especially if you live in the United States, um, because the Affordable Care Act went into uh, law and it, it actually is active as of the first of the year. So uh, there may be some of you who are out there who at this moment in time do not have health insurance. If you're living in the United States, you need to know that there are deadlines and you need to get your health insurance and you need to sign up and have it or you will be fined. And if, if it's a, a choice between you're going to have to pay one way or the other, and believe me, I know as an autism parent that you're picking and choosing what to spend your money on so that you can keep a roof over your head and that you can feed your family. I get it how important it is for you to be able to do that. Um, but you can't face a fine, and if it's facing a fine or having the insurance that allows you to get the help that you need for members of your family, not just for autism, but for other things as well, to take some of that pressure off, off, I really want to encourage you to not be in a situation where you're paying the fine. Really want to encourage you. Um, and if there, there is supposed to be things in place so that if you cannot afford the insurance, that you will be given help to be able to do that. It's different in different places. I do not pretend to begin to understand how it works in all of the 50 states. Uh, and I wish that it wasn't the case where we were having to deal with this piecemeal state by state by state by state. But, you know, um, that was the decision that was made by uh, Kathleen Sebelius, who is the head of Health and Human Services. She was given the power and she decided to give it to the individual states. I've talked about that before. I'm disappointed in her. I know other people are disappointed in her because of the website. Look, websites have problems and, you know, I'm willing to cut her some slack on that. But the decision to give the power to the states, uh, I have no slack for her about that. In any case, it is the state of the state, right? You have to go through your individual state. There are ways that you can gain information first. You can go to centerforautism.com and click on, on the homepage, there is a box that says Affordable Care Act. I think it cycles now between other things on the front page, but click on the Affordable Care Act box. It will give you a interactive state map and it will begin to give you information. If you go to your state, click on it. It will give you a breakdown, an overall breakdown of what your state law is, what's covered, what isn't. If you have a mandate, if you don't have a mandate, it will give you a beginning understanding of what it is that you're talking about. Now, does this solve it for you? I'm sorry, but it doesn't solve the mystery for you because you may be in a state that has a mandate, but you personally may still not have insurance if you are in a self-funded plan. <sighs> What does that mean, right? Uh, I am not an insurance expert, but I can tell you that uh, until ERISA, something called ERISA laws are changed, there is uh, a whole subset of employers who have something that they call insurance, but technically it isn't insurance. It's self-funded, which means that they are paying for it themselves. They may use an insurance company to administer it, but they're paying for it. So it's not technically insurance, which means it's outside the laws of insurance. It's outside of the autism mandate. So you have to look at whether your plan is self-funded. Some self-funded plans are still 
going along with the mandate. So I, I will tell you that my husband's plan is Arissa, and they don't have they're they're not participating. Uh, I have a plan that you know is through a self-funded plan, but it is participating. So don't assume if you have a self-funded plan, oh they're just not going to participate, right? You've got to do the legwork. I want to encourage you. There's lots of different ways that you can do this. You can call your health insurance provider if you feel like being frustrated. If you feel like you just want to waste a bunch of time and push a bunch of numbers and talk to a bunch of people who don't really know the answers um, that are paid to answer the phone sometimes and, and speak in a language that is not their of, of really of their understanding, that they can't understand the idiomatic language of what you're saying. If you want to sign up for that, you can call your insurance company. Uh, I'm not saying that they're all like that, but a lot of them are. If you want to do something else with your time, what I would encourage you to do is to find your good quality ABA provider first and then go to the ABA provider that you want to work with and say, here's my insurance information. Can you find out what I'm covered for? They, you know how when you call the insurance company and they say, you know, they have the, the person on the, the, the recording that says, if you, this is an emergency, please hang up and dial this. If you are uh, a client, um, if you are a member, put, you know, please input your something, something number, or if you are a provider, please push, right? Because they give them a pass to get by all of the nonsense and shenanigans. Let them do it. They have a vested interest in it. They want you as a client. They're going to hunt down the money for you, right? Do that. Keep your sanity and find out for sure what your coverage is. That's the best way to get funding. If you get to the end of that and you discover, I don't have any funding, then it's time to talk about how are you going to do an ABA program without the funding? It's doable. It's possible. People have been doing it for 20 years. You will not be breaking new ground if you are the person who's doing that. But you've got to make up your mind. Remember I said on Tuesday, if you're going after Moby Dick, pack the tartar sauce. you got to make up your mind that you are going to find the funding. You're going to, you know, milk the cow until the cream comes out. And believe me, people have been doing it. There are ways to do it. And we'll talk more about that another time. Uh, but right now we're going to take a break. And we will be back with more after these messages. Hi, welcome to Camp Discovery, a free-to-play suite of fun, interactive learning games for kids two and up, designed by experts in autism. Camp Discovery will open your early learner to a world of new skills, shapes, numbers, colors, locations, emotions, and more. Let's get started. Please choose a level. Objects. First, Camp Discovery's intelligent preference assessment determines your child's preferred reward for choosing correctly. Okay, got it! Let's play! Camp Discovery creates a motivating learning environment for your child by minimizing incorrect responses and maximizing successful ones. Find the shoes. Respond correctly and your child is rewarded with their favorite animations. You did it! Respond incorrectly and our unique prompting system guides your child to the correct answer by making it the largest choice. That's not it. Try again. Way to go! Continue to answer correctly and the size gradually reduces until the child makes the correct choice independently. You win! Success! Rewards motivate learning. Complete a round and your child is rewarded with a fun mini-game. Track your child's progress with easy-to-read graphs. Multiple settings options allow you to customize Camp Discovery to your child's unique needs. All this in one single app, the Camp Discovery app, available for free on iTunes, Google Play, and Amazon Store. 
Welcome back to Autism Live. I want to take a second to talk about bullying. Um, because we're going to be talking and people are using the word bully. Uh, what does it mean to be bullied? As a parent, I got to be honest with you, I thought that I knew what bullying meant and I had a picture in my head of what bullying looked like. Uh, I always have this picture of this, this kid on the playground who is... Uh, maybe a little bit bigger than some of the other kids and that he ha he travels in a pack of other kids that are his henchmen and he goes up and he says to the kids, you know, it's, I, I'm sure I got this from like Brady Bunch <laughs> or, you know, this early idea or the Partridge Family or something that I would have watched in the late 60s. Yes, I'm dating myself. Um, but the kid, you know, with his henchmen walks up to some of the other kids and says, you know, give me your, give me your lunch money. And the kid says no. And they pick him up and, you know, hang him on a coat hanger or, you know, a coat rack or something like that, or put him in his locker and close the door. And that's that's a bully, right? And this kid does this on a regular basis. Um, and so that's what I envisioned. And then, of course, you know, we have more updated versions of, of this kind of thing on television shows. We watch Glee and, you know, here are the kids in the Glee Club and the, the sports kids like to take a slushy and throw it at them. And they know that this is going to happen or they take and throw them in the dumpsters. Um, you know, I, I have to say that my heart hurts the older my child gets and the more I learn about bullying, the more intolerant I am of when people take these things lightly. I love the show Glee and I think the show Glee has done so much to address bullying when kids are different and unique. They have the girl who is on, on Glee that has Down syndrome, fabulous actress. Uh, you know, they've had several storylines where kids have had different issues that they were dealing with. They have the, the young man on the show that portrays somebody who is in a wheelchair. They uh, certainly talk about what it's like to be a gay teen um, and have talked about what the bullying is like in terms of that they they've you know shown sexual harassment from both sides uh what that is like and I, and I really appreciate that what I don't appreciate and I know it's not the creators of Glee is that now suddenly they've made this slushy thing uh from time to time on some of the ads that you know they're throwing slushies and catching it in slow motion as if it's something to be glorified that kind of tears my ticket um, because do we need to make it, you know, it's colorful and I get it. It makes a beautiful photography shot, but do we need to make it more acceptable? Really? Um, because it's bullying. It, it fits the definition of bullying. And I took the time last night and this morning to look up a little bit about bullying to see if we could define it. And I have to say that there was an article that came out last year about this time in the New York Times about defining bullying down. The author is Emily Bazelon. And she talks about the fact that we are using the term bullying to cover so many things and that new legislation is happening in states where they're trying to define bullying and state by state it's being defined in different ways. But she does say that the definition of bullying adopted by psychologists is as follows. Physical or verbal abuse repeated 
over time and involving a power imbalance. In other words, it's about one person with more social status lording it over another person over and over again to make that person miserable. Okay, so the thing that really jumps out to me in that is two things, the power imbalance, right? And that it has to be repetitive. So that if somebody comes up and does something mean, and they cite several instances in this article, Emily does, about, um, in particular, I mean, horrible, horrible, abusive um, incidents is uh, one, in fact, where a child was beaten to death and that they tried to... Uh, attribute it to bullying. Um, and what they found out was that because it was an isolated incident and they couldn't prove that it had happened on other incidences, that they could not use the term bullying. Okay. Um, so we have to have another word for that, right? And we need to be discriminant about how and when we use the term bullying. But I think that um, it doesn't define here, it says over and over again, it doesn't say across multiple times. It says over, well, it does say repeated over time, but it doesn't say that it has to be so in different times. I would have argued that, you know, if somebody slapped the child uh, and slapped them once, that that is aggression, but apparently that's not bullying if you've never done it before and you never do it after. But according to this definition, if you slap the person again, then to me that fits and is bullying. Uh, especially if there is some sort of power imbalance where the person is not able to defend themselves. Um, or there is a perception that they're not able to defend themselves. It gets dicey, right? Um, and lawyers argue this. I, I don't know why we just can't all be nice, but we apparently we can't. So I think it's important for us as parents and as individuals who perhaps have a disability that we get clear ourselves on what bullying is so that we know how to how and when to report it and how and when to use those words. My son is um, someone who if someone does something, he will jump to saying bullying. And I am really excited to be able to take this information back to him and say, you know, it's not okay for somebody to do this, but in this instance, you know, if they're doing it over and over and over again, that's when we want to use the term bullying um, and empower him to use the terms properly. Now, uh, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and talk a little bit about this case um, that it has been in the news the last couple of days. But before we do that, I think, you know, a little palate cleanse. We, um, we're, we're going to take a, a little bit of a longer break. Um, uh, and then we're going to come back and do that. And I will tell you that in the next hour, we have something really upbeat and fabulous so that we're not going to spend the entire two hours talking just about this. Okay. So we're going to have a little bit longer break and then we're going to come back and talk finally about this circumstance with the teacher with our understanding of what bullying is and what it isn't. Stick with us. Have you ever had that dream where you're back in school and you're naked? Do you remember the shame, the helpless frustration of that dream? When I was growing up, that dream was my life. 
Not, not that I went to school naked, <laughs> but, but the shame, the frustration, the sense that everybody was against me, that was real for me. I was seven years old, and I felt like my school was a battleground where everybody else was on the opposite army. And I didn't know why or how to fix it. That was my life. And this is me. I was kind of awkward, as you may be able to tell. I didn't, I didn't have a terrible life. My family loved me. I had a couple friends. And when it came to Super Mario Brothers, I, I was a pretty big deal. <laughs> but I didn't fit in at school or anywhere, really. And I didn't know why. I would try my hardest to make friends, and I just wouldn't. I would be friendly, and people would be mean to me. I, I didn't know how to make it work. I had three memories from that time. One is that I was walking home from school with my mom and saying, how do you talk to people? I don't even know how to talk to people. Another is that I sat down at a lunch table, and every other kid at that table stood up and walked away. Me being me, I decided to exploit my newfound power, so I followed them from table to table, <laughs> forcing them to move around the lunchroom before I gave up and ate alone. My third memory is coming home from school sobbing, running into my dad's arms and saying, I'm bad, I'm bad. I'm bad. So growing up was tough, elementary school especially. Middle school is a little bit easier, but I still have a lot of trouble fitting in. I'm the one in the tie-dye. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't until high school when things really started to turn around for me. You see, my parents are great parents. They're in the audience, and so if you see them, give them a high five. But all parents want to think that their kids are normal, but by this point, my parents had realized that I was marching to a different drummer or maybe an entirely different orchestra. And so they took me to a psychologist right before I started high school, and I was diagnosed with Asperger's Syndrome. If you haven't heard of it, Asperger's Syndrome is a neurological condition on the autistic spectrum, and basically what it does is it made it so I was unable to learn social skills naturally. You can think of it this way. If you take a baby, and that baby is born in Japan, that baby is going to learn Japanese, just growing up naturally listening to the world around it. Whereas if you take an adult who's never spoken Japanese and you drop them in the middle of Tokyo, that adult's going to have a much harder time. In the same way, for somebody without Asperger's, people learn, social, uh, people learn social skills naturally just by observing the world around them. Whereas for somebody with Asperger's, it's like being the adult in a foreign country where you don't speak the language. It's much, much harder to learn. So when I was diagnosed, it was this huge epiphany because remember, I didn't know why I was struggling. But now I understood, oh, it's because I don't have social skills. I remember my psychologist gave me a list of the social skills that people with Asperger struggle with. And I was like, oh, all right, let's get to work. And so I started studying social skills. I started reading books on body language, conversation, etiquette, you name it. I started watching movies with my parents where I would pause the movie like 10 times to be like, hey, what just happened in that conversation? Hey, I don't understand why this character did that. Hey, explain these social cues to me. And I started to get better. And it started to make sense. I started being able to figure out the systems that, that govern the way that people interact. And I started being able to create metaphors and ideas to help me know how to respond. Like, let's talk about body language. Body language is fun. You guys should go to the bookstore, pick up a book on body language. It'll tell you all the different things that your body can do. My, my favorite is that feet signal intent. So if somebody's talking to you and their feet are pointing right at you, means that they're very focused in on talking with you. Whereas if they're talking to you and their feet are pointed towards the door, 
they, they want to go. And so you should, you should probably let them end the conversation. But body language is also difficult because there's so many different signals that mean so many different things. Like if you rub your nose, it means that you're uncertain. Whereas if you rub the back of your neck, it means that you're anxious. Similar, similar actions, similar meanings, but a little bit different. And so I'd be looking at somebody, trying to figure out what all of their body language is saying, and by the time I'd figured it out, the conversation moved on, and I'd completely forgotten what I was supposed to be talking about. But this is kind of what it's like to try to figure out, okay, I mean, you know, look at this list. What, is, what are these people feeling? It's, it's really hard to see in just a moment. So what I did is I decided, okay, let me condense this. And so I took all the body language signals, and I grouped them as just comfort and discomfort. So I decided, all right, I don't need to remember if rubbing your nose means uncertainty or anxiety or indigestion or whatever. I just need to know that it means that you're not totally comfortable and maybe something's wrong. And then I can take that and I can try to figure out what's wrong so I can fix it. So if I'm talking to you and I notice that you start giving off body language signals of discomfort, I can say, all right, let me, let me look at the conversation, let me look at the environment, let me see if there's something that I can fix here. Remember, before, people would get upset with me and I wouldn't, I wouldn't know why. I would just be talking to somebody and I think this conversation is going great. And then they would blow up because I missed all of the signals. Now I could start to see what was happening and start to like adapt. But I still have to learn how to have conversation. And <coughs> conversation is tough because there's a lot of conversation books out there, but they all sort of just talk about conversation tips and tricks, which is not very helpful. It's kind of like if you wanted to learn how to play baseball, and all of the books that you read just told you, we'll keep your eye on the ball. It, that's not the rules of the game. You're not going to know how to play. And so I did a lot of study, a lot of practice, a lot of thinking it through, and I figured out the secret to conversation. Are you ready for it? It's ready to, ready to write it down or tweet it or whatever. Conversation is a sandwich. Specifically, conversation is like making a sandwich with a friend, where you add an ingredient, and then you pass the sandwich to them, they had an ingredient, they pass the sandwich back to you. I know that you guys probably don't tag team your sandwich creation, but it, it's a metaphor, so work with me. Because this is the way the conversation is supposed to work. You add something to the conversation, your, your thoughts, your ideas, a story, and then you invite the other person to speak by asking them a question or something like that. You're adding the ingredient, and then you're passing the sandwich. And then they do the same, they pass it back to you. So now I knew what I was supposed to be doing in conversation. I knew how to keep the conversation flowing and how to know when I was supposed to add something. But I still needed to figure out how do I be a good conversation partner? How do I make sure that I'm picking topics that people are interested in? And this was a difficult for me because I used to ramble so much growing up. Like somebody would ask me, well, what did you do today? And I would tell them. All of it. <laughs> this was rarely the actual answer that they were looking for. So I had to figure out, okay, how do I tone it back? How do I avoid rambling? How do I only tell them what they're interested in hearing? And so what I decided was I developed this technique that I called the creaky door. And it works like this. Let's say you're getting home late and the door, your front door is old and creaky. You're not going to want to open that door all at once because it's going to annoy everybody in the house. So you open it a little bit at a time. Then you open a little bit more, and then you keep going, until eventually you've got the door all the way open and you can enter. In the same way, if somebody asked me a question, I would share part of the answer and then give them an opportunity to ask for more. So if, for instance, somebody asked me, what did you do this weekend? I could say, oh, well, I went to the pool. And then I would stop. 
If they were curious, they could ask me and I would tell them more. And if they weren't, then they wouldn't ask and we would change the topic and no harm done. So I figured out all these different systems for how to interact with people. I had to sort of put it into my own language. And I could keep going. I could keep telling you all the different things that I figured out. But as we discussed, I have a tendency to ramble. So I'm going to cut myself off right there. But the point is this. I started getting better at social skills. I started not being perfect, but being good enough. I started having conversations where I understood the nonverbal signals that were coming my mind. I started being able to, to make friends and be a part of a friend group. And guys, I want you to get how incredible <coughs> this was for me. Like, social interaction was something that I struggled with for my entire life. But now I had learned that it was not a permanent disability, but it was something that I could overcome. Like, that was huge. But even more than that was learning just the joy of friendship. Like, for somebody that was on the outskirts his entire life, to be a part of a friend group, to be somebody that people wanted to hang out with, like that was so incredible. I think that I realized just how much things had turned around when I got a phone call from my friend Mark. And he said, Daniel, let's get the group together to hang out this week. And I said, okay, sounds like a good idea. And then he, there was sort of like this long pause. And he said, so you're going to organize it, right? I had somehow moved from social outcast to party planner. And, and guys, to be somebody with Asperger's that learns social skills, I mean, you could think about that like a kid that has terrible eyesight getting glasses for the first time. But to experience the joy of friendship after a lifetime of the, on the outskirts, that's like giving the kid glasses and then taking them to the Louvre. And so Spider-Man's Uncle Ben says that with great power comes great responsibility. And it's, it's a TEDx University event, so we're, we're going to have some highbrow you know, citations here. So with great power comes great responsibility. And so if I had the power to open the door to this new world of friendship and acceptance, then I also have a responsibility to do that for others. So what I did was simple. I started looking for the kids that used to be like me. I started looking for the kids that were weird, that were different, that just didn't quite fit in. And then I made friends with them. And what I found is that those kids were the most incredible friends I had. And I think that it was their time on the outskirts that made them so incredible. Like, our culture has this weird thing where it thinks that pain isn't normal, where it thinks that the default state of humanity is just to be happy all the time. And so when you have this pressure to fit in, you also have this pressure to bury your pain and put on a happy face. But when you know that you're not going to fit in no matter what you do, when you know that you're an outcast, even you, if you acknowledge that life is hard sometimes, it gives you the freedom to acknowledge your pain and then to acknowledge the pain in others. And so it builds compassion. Or you can think of it another way. Thoreau went into the wilderness away from society because he wanted to live deliberately. But when society forces you into the wilderness, it also forces you to live deliberately. You can make choices not based on what's in stock, not, not based on what's in style or what your friends think, but just based on who you want to be and what you want to do. And so as I reached out to these people, I found that they were incredible friends. I found that the people that I reached out to because I thought that they needed me, they were the people that I needed because they were the most able to support me. I'll tell you a story. My freshman year of college, there was a girl that was going through a really hard time, one of my friends, and so I really poured myself into trying to support her. And then, one day, I get a phone call from home, and it's bad news. 
bad news. I kind of hold it together long enough to get off the phone, and then I just lose it. Like, we're talking tears, we're talking, it, it, was, it was massive. And I'm crying, and then I feel her arm around me. And I look up, and it's my friend that I've been supporting. She held me, and she comforted me, and she was exactly the person that I needed in that moment. And guys, it wasn't just that my friends helped me learn. Uh, it, it wasn't just that my friends helped support me, but my friends helped me learn that it was okay to need <coughs> support. Because when I first started being social, when I first started tasting acceptance and what that felt like, I became so afraid of rejection. I became terrified that I was going to do something wrong, that I was going to make some kind of faux pas, and people were going to be like, Daniel's an imposter. He's secretly awkward all along. <laughs> Let's throw sticks at him. Like, obviously this is not the most realistic fear, but our greatest fears really are, are they? And so I had so much pressure to always put my best foot forward. But that's really lonely, right? Because when you're only putting one foot forward, the rest of yourself is still held back. And so over time, my friends started to show me that they liked me just for me, that I didn't have to be the party planner or the shoulder to cry on all the time. Like, it was okay to just be Daniel, even if Daniel was awkward. Like, this is Sam, who I dated in college. As you can see, she was very good about creating a space where I felt the freedom to just be me, even <laughs> if that was really awkward. <laughs> or here's some of my dearest friends in a Disneyland teacup, because where else do you go with friends? <laughs> and so this group, we became so close because our freshman year, we decided that once a week we would get together and just make time for being real with each other. That time looked different every week. Sometimes we would discuss a topic, sometimes we would play a game, sometimes we would just hang out and enjoy each other. But the only rule was that we had to bring our real self to that hour. And so I brought real Dan week after week, and I was met with acceptance week after week, even when real Dan was pretty awkward. <laughs> and so over time, my friends helped me realize that it was cool that I could be super Dan the social man. It was cool that I learned these social skills and stuff, but I didn't have to be super Dan the social man all the time. Like, it was enough to just be me. And, and I hope that you guys get that it's enough to just be you. Like, I hope that you get that there are people out there that will like you just the way that you are, and that you shouldn't stop looking for those people. Because I think ultimately it's those people that define us. It's the people that don't give up on us. It's the people that see the good in us, even when we're pretty hard on ourselves. Like, the proverb says that it takes a village to raise a child, but really, we need a village around us every day of our lives. My story is the story of a village. It's not the story of me. It's the story of the support that I received early on from my family when I was struggling. <coughs> it's the story of the friends that encouraged me so I could encourage somebody else. It's the story of the kind words that I got that I could pass on. Ultimately, it's the story of the idea that everybody deserves a place where they belong. Like, when I was seven years old, I ate in the cafeteria alone because nobody else wanted to sit with me. If I tried to sit with them, they would leave. I think it's safe to say that nobody else in that cafeteria saw any value in me. But I think it's also safe to say that the people in my life that did see value in me were the reason why I was able to get to where I was today. Like, I mean, I don't want to brag, but I run a website about social skills that's been visited over a quarter million times. 
the news has done a story on me, and I'm, I'm kind of giving a TEDx talk about my life right now. <laughs> I think it's safe to say that there was value in me, for sure. But I realized that because of the people in my life that let me know. Um, and I realized that I couldn't have done it alone. And guys, the point of my talk is really simple, and it's this. Nobody deserves to be alone, and nobody can really make it alone. So if you are alone, reach out to people. Let people know. And if you see somebody else that's alone, be their friend. Like when I was seven years old, sitting alone in that cafeteria, I was desperate for somebody to come up to me. I was desperate for somebody to sit down at my table and let me know that I was worth being friends with. If you had been in that cafeteria with me, if you had seen the kid eating lunch by himself every day, would you have been the one to sit down next to me? And if your answer is yes, then could you be the one that would sit down next to somebody today that's in just as much a need of a friend as I was then? Like, could you be the one that would see somebody that everybody else has rejected and say, I can accept that person? Would you be the one that sees somebody that might be awkward or weird or different and be able to say, you know what? They might make a really cool friend. And then could you be friends with them? Could you sit down next to them and ask their name? Could you listen to their story and become a part of it? <coughs> I promise you that if you do, you just might find that they become an incredible part of yours. Welcome back. So that was Daniel Wendler, an amazing young man and somebody that we were scheduled to have on the show today. Unfortunately, he had some things that came up and he's not able to be with us here today. We're hoping to reschedule him early next week. Uh, but uh, wanted to talk just a little bit and show, because this is Feel Good Friday, and we're, we're going to be taking some time today. We've already taken some time today talking about bullying and about this case of the teacher with a child stuck in the chair, that's, you know, not, not necessarily feel good, right? Uh, quite the opposite, in fact. But uh, how lovely is it to listen to this young man speak? And uh, we're really looking forward to having him on the show next week and, and have him help us understand how we teach these social skills to our children. He is now speaking around the world, really, and uh, doing an amazing job doing it. Now, this is the time of day when we always take a break and watch The A Word. The A Word is an ongoing documentary that is taking a look at what it's like when you go into a home and do early intensive behavioral intervention. This follows a little boy, Jack Riley, who was diagnosed with autism when he was two years old, and his family as they begin that intensive therapy. We're at the beginning of the series, about a month into therapy, where Jack Riley is definitely making progress already, but he can get very frustrated when things are not going the way that that they had for the longest time. We see some tantruming happening and some potential tantrumings. I want you to look at how the therapist deals with redirecting him. Very important skill that we all need to learn how to do. This is the A word. Wow, you have so many words today. Say butterfly. Wow. You can say butterfly. 
And when did this start, the two syllables? Um, I noticed it Monday, so four days ago, that he, that he started to say on his own. What is this? What is this? Book! Okay, here you go. There you go. And he's been managing for things, so that means asking for things a lot more now that he knows the label to. So book, guitar. And he's counting now. The words aren't clear, but they're the same every time. One day Cheryl said one, and he said two. And then she said two, and he said three. And, and then she came to me and said, he counts to ten. And I said, no, he doesn't, because yeah, he counts to ten. absolutely love this series. I love that moment when he's going to go down the hallway to the door and and she's you just I watch it again and you can watch all of these on their very own YouTube channel. But notice that she's not talking to him. He's not at a place where receptively, I mean she does say some things earlier and, and later, but she's not saying it over and over and over and over again. You can't go in there, you can't go in there, you can't do that, you can't do that, right? Um but, you know, and she puts her hands down in a very passive way and she moves her legs over and he, boy, he wants to get in there and he is used to getting past somebody to get past there. So he really is working it and trying very hard to make sure that he can get to that door. But 
uh, you know, and, and she's not having the big old discussion about him, but she, you know, makes it clear it's not going to happen, um, but not in a negative way. And then she says to him, come on, let's go over here and look at this. And we get to see the outcome of that, that he's sitting and drawing on, on his little board. So, you know, a really great thing to watch and remember, oh, right. Right, I can redirect. It is one of the tools in my tool belt. Um, and, and, you know, it looks different with all children and in all different circumstances, but we can redirect a 16-year-old, too, who's very high-functioning, who wants to talk about something else. We can get into an argument with them, or we, we can just redirect them, but about something that's different. So lots, lots of different ways that we can attack these issues in a positive way so that it doesn't have to always be something that's negative, right? So take a look at the A Word, watch this series. There, there's now close to three years of videotape and episodes on this little boy. And you can watch one of the more recent episodes uh, that features both myself and my son. We went to the zoo with the A Word. We went on an outing with the A Word to the zoo and had a love lovely, lovely time. It was very fun to see my son interact with Jack Riley, and he's just doing amazingly. He is the sweetest little boy, uh, and his parents are pretty amazing, too. So check it out on their, on their very own YouTube page. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come back, and I'm going to let, let go and talk about this with the teacher for once and for all. Stick with us. Hi, I'm Ryan with Autism Research Group. We study ways to improve the lives of kids with autism. One of those ways is teaching safety skills, such as what to do if they get lost. We hit the streets to find out if anybody knows the correct answer on how to teach a kid what to do if they get lost. You're teaching a child. What to do if they get lost. Yeah, you're trying to okay. make them independent so they have the skills. Gotcha, okay. Well, give them a compass. Code name's good idea, Centurion. We always have this whistle. Um. Oh, I'd also tell the kid, I tell the kid, don't get scared. It's all you're gonna be alright, man. This is just the world. You're this is planet Earth. You're at home here. As long as you're on planet Earth, you're at home. As long as you're on planet Earth, you're home. This guy's a genius. With that flawless logic, he just solved our homeless problem. And as for the unique sounding whistle, although very cool, it'll probably only work if you're in close proximity. And a compass. I have her call me. Yeah, she doesn't have a phone. Parents are like, you're too young, you don't need a phone. Establish some sort of like meeting place. What if they can't find a meeting place? Because sometimes Ooh. the kids get nervous when they get lost. Yeah. So like a backup plan, well, like well, plan B. Yeah, I don't know. No, not really. Let them go and find a new kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got a different one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's not much you can do. There is I stuff like... you can do. That's right, there is stuff you can do. In 2012, myself, along with my colleagues, Dr. Jonathan Tarbox and Dr. Adele Nadowski, published a study in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis on teaching kids what to do when they get lost. The study demonstrated how three simple things, rules, role-playing, and praise, were effective in establishing these help-seeking behaviors. The benefit of this method is it doesn't require the child to have a cell phone or to have to locate a meeting place, which might be difficult if they're in a place like Disneyland. So once again, our method included rules, role-playing, and praise. Let's head back outside and learn about some of these rules. They should yell out loud. Can't find my mom, my mom, help me. Maybe yell out and scream for help. All right, scream really loud. Correct. And if that doesn't work, then... I don't know. Well, they could seek help from someone. Find an adult. Yeah, go to a vendor, you know, and say I'm lost. Uh, find an adult. 
like a police officer or a fireman or an employee in the store and tell them and maybe they can help you contact your parent. It really is that simple. You don't need to get your kid a cell phone. You don't need to establish a meeting place that they might not be able to find when they're lost and panicking. And you definitely don't need to give them a compass. All your kid has to do is three things. First, yell mom or dad real loud. Two, if that doesn't work, find an employee. And then third, tell the employee they're lost. If they can't locate an employee, then tell them to find a mother with children because that's probably the safest person to approach. I'm not saying that most men are predators, but most predators are men. That is a fact. I read it in a fortune cookie. All right, so you've gone over the rules with your kid and you've quizzed them and they're able to tell you the correct responses so they understand the rules. But is that enough? How do you know they're gonna perform correctly in a real world setting? You need to get out there and find out if they can actually do it. So they'd go over the rules and tell them like, do this, do that, but how would you know if they actually knew what to do. If you wanted to shoot a basketball, and I just told you, oh, when you shoot a basketball, do this, this, and this. I never, never practiced. You never practiced, yeah. So it doesn't matter how many times we go over the rules or how well you can repeat them back to me, it's not gonna change until you get on the court and practice. Maybe do uh, like a, you know, a little skit with them. Like a role play? Like... Role play, yeah. Your child, you're lost in the toy aisle. Okay. What do you do? I'm an attendant walking around. <laughs> I'm lost, I don't know where my mom is. And then once you practice, you just like praise them, give them feedback, like good job, you did it. Yes, this woman wins the prize for best comment. She pointed out the most important part of learning, reinforcement. Now in our study, we used praise, but for your kid, you might have to use something else. You might have to buy them a treat, a toy, take them to their favorite restaurant where they can eat unhealthy food and run around and climb through plastic tunnels that have the unmistakable scent of urine and then play games spending $20 to get a plastic little spider ring that they will eventually lose in the ball pit. The point is, you need to reward your child for correctly demonstrating what you've been teaching them. Okay, I'm gonna call her. Hello, your child. Ryan, I was just Yay! So you tested it out in the store <laughs> to make sure I knew it. I had the rules, yes. we role played it and you made sure I knew it, and then like you said, good job, and all that. Now we're good to go. We're good to go. All right. Done? High five right there. Yeah. So there you have it. Give your child the rules, get out there and practice, and reward your child for responding correctly. For more information, please visit us online at autismresearchgroup.org. I'm Ryan Bergstrom. Thanks for watching. Yes, ding, no. <laughs> Yes, this woman wins the first. Yes, this woman. Yes, this woman wins the best. Yes, this woman wins the first place. Yes, this woman. Why can't I say what? Yes, this woman wins. What's the line? Yes! Welcome back. From time to time on the show, we give out an award. It's, we have to really think about it before we give it out. And today, we want to give the Autism Ignorance Award. And we want to give it to a couple of people. We'd like to start by giving it to Nicole McVeigh. She is a fifth grade teacher in Goodrich, Michigan. And last November, she had an event happen in her classroom where an 11-year-old who has an autism spectrum diagnosis got himself trapped headfirst in his chair. This apparently took place during an indoor recess period. 
and Miss McVeigh found it amusing. I, I don't doubt, as a former teacher, that there was an amusing element of it for her. We can hear her giggling on the videotape that she made of the boy trapped in the chair. The boy was obviously distressed and crying, and she found it amusing enough that she thought she would videotape it and asks him some questions about, well, how did this happen? We hear her say on the videotape, and you can find it, it's all over Facebook the last couple of days. We hear her say, would you like to get tased? Now, a lot of us were really offended when we heard that. We now understand that this is a phrase that they use in their classroom where they take two fingers and they tickle someone on their sides to help them to get over feeling anxious and they call it being tased. First of all, <laughs> that's really a very irresponsible phrase to use in a classroom where you have someone with an autism spectrum diagnosis. It's a phrase that's used by the police and that is a really, really irresponsible thing to be teaching children that there is something good about being tased, all right? We could end the conversation there and say, you really shouldn't be laughing at a child who is stuck and disturbed and you really shouldn't be teaching children a term that really goes with something quite unpleasant that's used by our police force that is something being tickled, right? We could, we could stop and leave it there. But again, she felt the need to videotape it. At one point while she's videotaping, the principal is heard to be laughing about it too. She says that maintenance has been called, that they're going to come and remove the chair. And the principal laughs and says, well, this really isn't an emergency to them. And the videotape stops shortly after that. The, that would be the end of the story, probably, except that the teacher then decided to show the videotape to everyone else that was in the class and then emailed it to several of her colleagues and friends. Now, there are a lot of things that you can say and there are a lot of people who are defending this teacher and I wanna give them the Autism Ignorance Award too. I'm sure that this teacher had moments where she did her job in other ways with other children. But this shows such an appalling lack of professionalism, such an appalling lack of judgment, and such a complete and total ignorance about what autism spectrum disorder is that she would behave this way. Now, I would go so far as to say that this was inappropriate way of dealing with any child, but there are extra consequences, this being a child on the autism spectrum who is probably, by the nature of their diagnosis, struggling with social interactions to begin with. I have an 11-year-old who is in fifth grade, and if this happened in my child's school to any child, I would be outraged. Now, the teacher is defending herself, saying she saw this as a teaching opportunity. Well, I'm an ex-teacher, and I believe in teaching opportunities, Miss McVeigh, but never is it a teaching opportunity when a child is distressed and you decide to make fun of them and to videotape them while you're making fun of them. That's not a teaching opportunity. That is bullying. And as we just talked about, bullying is when someone who has a higher status does something to someone else and does it repeatedly. And you repeatedly make fun of the child and laugh while he is stuck in the chair. For those of you who are defending this woman, and I refuse to call her a teacher, she is not a teacher. 
But this woman who was leading this class, if you feel the need to defend her, I would ask you to look at that videotape and ask yourself if it would have been okay with you if she had treated your child that way. You're saying, oh, she found humor in something. Yes, she did. The child wasn't. And she could clearly see that. And yet she shared it. Would that have been okay with you if it was your child? I don't think so. She is now on administrative leave. The principal, by the way, once this videotape was shared, and the teacher did share it with her colleagues, and it was some of her friends or colleagues who turned her in to the school district and said, this is not okay. I want to applaud them for having the courage to stand up to one of your colleagues or friends and say, this wasn't right. And you had to have known what the consequences were going to be for her because she should not be in a classroom. The principal knew it because once the videotape was made public, he resigned. That was the right thing to do. This woman is arguing that she didn't do anything wrong. The school board has voted already that they would like to dismiss her, but because of Michigan law for a tenure teacher, and I quote, she has the right to a private hearing of any charges against her. The district is obligated to respect that right and will not discuss specifics of this case. So she's on administrative leave with pay during this period of time while they go about ensuring that she loses her tenure status and is fired. If you're defending her, I would ask you to dig deep within your soul and ask why. Watch the videotape, see for yourself what it is that you're defending. I'm not saying that this woman has only done bad things, but clearly, clearly she should not be in a classroom. There are fabulous, really good teachers who would never think that it was a teaching opportunity to make fun of and humiliate any child but especially a child who already has a disability in a social situation, that transcends bullying, Miss McVeigh. That is handicap harassment. You will lose your job. I count on this school district to go through the process that they have to do while you sit on your happy butt and get paid after behaving this way. And if for some reason the school district can't fire you, I will assure you I will come and pick it myself. I'm a busy woman with things to do, but I will come and pick it because you have crossed the line. And that's what I have to say about that. We will be back after these messages. Skills is an online program that provides assessment, curriculum, positive behavior support planning for challenging behavior, and progress tracking, and it does this all in one place. The Skills Assessment and Curriculum addresses eight areas of development, which even includes advanced higher level areas such as executive functions and cognition, which pretty much makes Skills the only ABA-based set of curricula for teaching more complex skills, things like problem solving, planning, self-management, perspective taking, and even inferring and predicting others' private events. Skills is a four-step system. Step one is to add the child to your account. Step two is to start assessment. The skills assessment is the only ABA-based assessment with psychometric research demonstrating the language subscale to have excellent reliability. Every area of human functioning and typical child development from infancy to adolescence was researched, making the skills assessment the most comprehensive of its kind in the world, and we're quite proud of that. Skills is easy to use. Simply click Start Assessment and begin answering questions, or simply type in a keyword 
Find specific activities to assess and add activities to treatment. Step 3. Choose activities. Once you've completed the assessment, Skills selects from a pool of 4,000 activities categorized by age, level, and skill type to provide you with exactly those activities each child needs. Start by choosing a curriculum, then a lesson, and finally an activity. Click the information icon to view prerequisites, ages in which targets develop, examples, and IEP goals. Click the video icon to watch a short video. Once you've identified an activity you want to teach, adding activities to treatment is a snap. Step 4. Start treatment. Here you can access customizable activity lesson details, add your own customized targets and exemplars, and edit an activity status such as introducing or mastering it. You can even print handouts such as worksheets, tracking forms, visual aids, and other materials. Skills also offers multiple progress charts, mapping curriculum progress, lesson progress, and cumulative number of activities and targets mastered over time. The Skills Language Curriculum is categorized by verbal behavior type so that users can identify progress for verbal operants, such as echoics, mans, tacks, and interverbals. Skills is one of the only programs that provides the ability to write behavior intervention plans, or BIPs, for challenging behavior. With just a few clicks, the outline of the behavior intervention plan is written for you and ready to be printed and implemented. You can learn more about Skills today and get started by visiting us at www.skillsforautism.com or you can call us at 877-975-4559. Skills. Progress starts here. Welcome back to Autism Live. I, we had somebody who wrote in just now and said, I totally agree with you, Shannon. My heart is breaking for that child who needed help and understanding and love. Of course, we're talking about the fifth grader who was in the classroom who got himself stuck in his chair and his teacher decided to videotape it while laughing um, and thoroughly enjoyed it and then decided to email the videotape to other colleagues. Yeah. Um, you know what, I, I mean, there's so many things, there's so many different angles of it that bother me, and uh, one of the things that bothers me the most is teachers are so maligned. Teachers are so maligned, and they uh, have such a tough job. It is such a tough job to be a teacher, and we need to hold up our good teachers and tell them what a good job that they're doing, and, and we need to find ways to reward them, both financially and other ways, so that they will stay and do the good job that they are doing. And it's something like this, when somebody does something so stupid and thoughtful and ignorant. I mean, even in some of the press of it, they're referring to it as the stupid teacher who shared the videotape. I, I mean, honestly, you just can't get past uh, how she could have thought that that was a good idea. Um, not even to mention just how stupid it was, what it was that she actually did. Um, you know, and, and it puts such a terrible light on teachers. Uh, and, and it also makes the rest of us feel a little bit less okay about sending our kids to school. I don't know, is it just me? Don't you feel like, gosh, what, really? Like that that could happen? 
you know, I posted this on my Facebook last night, and it was so interesting, the vast array of responses that people gave. And, and somebody said, well, let's be honest. You know, there are some people who should not be in classrooms, and clearly this is just one of those people, and it's sad that this had to happen for us to discover that that... She's a tenured teacher, which means that this... Who, el who knows what else this woman has done in the past um, that she thought was a teaching opportunity? Excuse me. Um, I got your teaching opportunity, right? Um, it's just really so very upsetting. Uh, I, I just don't even know where to begin. And, and somebody else was saying, you know, I've been in classrooms before where a child has gotten themselves caught in a chair. And yes, I understand that there is an element about it that, you know, you're, you know that the child is going to be okay, right? The child doesn't know that. You know it. And so it's hard you know, that you have to deal with your feelings about it because there's something that's in the ridiculous about it, right? Let's be honest. But somebody was saying that this had happened at church not that long ago and that the staff, you know, there was that first initial moment of, oh, what have you done? And then they got on the floor and were comforting the child until they could get the back of the chair taken off so that the child would be okay. And that maybe later on, when it was over, they could share a giggle with the child about, see, you're okay, and we won't do that again, and use that teaching opportunity. But no, no, <laughs> that's not what, what this teacher chose to do. But there again, a teacher who would decide that the way that the redirect that we're going to have when somebody's feeling down, I mean, it's okay, tickles. Although I got to say, fifth grade, why we're still doing tickles, not really age appropriate, right? But then to decide to call it tasing somebody, woohoo! What are you preparing these children for? It, the whole thing tears my ticket, tears my ticket. And, and really all this child really needed, let's, let's talk about moving forward, that now they had a school board meeting on Monday night and there are a bunch of parents there who are saying, oh, it's just because this family is oversensitive, this isn't bullying, this was okay, she's a good teacher, blah, blah, blah. What does that make that family feel like? Because they didn't have enough to deal with already. And what does that make it for that child who's now still attending that school? I feel for that family. They didn't ask for this. They didn't ask for it at all. And the only reason why the family has made the videotape available to the news outlets is to let people know, you think this teacher is Lily White and that she's such a good teacher? Take a look. Take a look at what she videotaped and shared. This isn't that somebody came in and videotaped her and she didn't know. Right? We would still be saying, okay, look, you got caught. But that's not even what happened. She did this herself. She video. And then let's go back to that for a second. The way classrooms are set up now with so many children, the ratio of teachers to children, I can understand why a student would have gotten caught in a chair because there isn't enough ability for a teacher to watch every child at every single moment. But I'm sorry, if my child was in that classroom and this had happened to another kid, I would be asking the teacher, why do you have time to pick up a cell phone and videotape and what else are you videotaping? And you know what? If you have time to be videotaping our kids for something that doesn't have to do with a lesson plan, then you're not doing your job. But then, you know, and then her decision to email it to people, look, that's when we know for sure this woman is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, right? <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, what was she thinking? 
And, you know, the truth is she wasn't. And the fact that she's still trying to defend herself, the principal knew, the principal resigned. And I got to say, I, I'm mad at the, teach, the principal for not sticking up for the kid in that moment and doing something and intervening in the moment. But I respect the fact that he got it immediately and went, you know what? I blew this. I blew this and I'm not going to fight it. And I'm not going to ask them to pay me while I fight it. Yes, my blood pressure is very high. <laughs> All right. Uh, but we'll think good well wishes for this family. And we'll hope that the rest of the families that are defending this woman will buy a vowel. Uh, and that's... Uh, <laughs> Now I'm done. Now I'm done. All right, we're going to take another break, and we're going to come back and look at some of the things that you guys said earlier in the week that you'd like to work on, that you'd like to make progress on. Let's move on. Be, stick with us. We'll be right back. When Maddie was diagnosed, I'll be honest, I was very ignorant on what autism was. I knew that autism was basically something they hit boys at the age of two to three and shut down and sometimes you think of the typical Rain Man uh, movie um, and with Maddie she was doing all the same signs and symptoms of a, of a typical child with autism spectrum disorder. Stand up! She didn't even acknowledge us coming into the room. Um, she had barely any eye contact. Um, she didn't interact with her sister. She didn't really do anything. She just basically lined up her toys and that was about it. We have a team of seven volunteers, or, or eight now, eight volunteers, including my husband and I, and I'm the team leader. And so I do all the curriculum and get everything ready each week. Jana was downstairs until 11 o'clock at night working on curriculum, going through two different textbooks. And then we, as a group, meet on Monday nights and we would go through what the curriculum was from Jana. And a lot of times we would go, well, how exactly do you do that? How do you sit her at the table and, and do this trial base? Well, what skills has done for us, it's, it's taken that away from Jana trying to figure out the curriculum for one. She can go down, or on our, even on our laptop, and she can sit down and through all these questions, it comes up with the different programs. At least for me, it was a relief off my shoulders. I was worried that I might be missing something, um, missing a curriculum that maybe she needs to know, where the skills, they have every, every possible thing your child needs to know from zero to seven. They have a program for that. What noise is this? Every program that we did with her, I knew it was specific for what she needed to learn. Because before skills, it was a lot of, okay, well, is that really age appropriate for a two-year-old? You know, because it's not generalized. It's anywhere from zero to seven. This is what your child needs to know in most, in most manuals you'll find. Um, but for this, okay, yep, she should be learning this. And no, she's not four yet. She doesn't need to know that yet. We are so fortunate that Jana was able to attend a conference put on by CARD that opened the door for skills and that um, there's no looking back for us. We started using the program in November and it seemed like by January something just clicked and she has completely kind of came out of her fog that she was in for quite a while. I have never read a documented case on any child that has not 
benefited anything from applied behavior analysis and uh, now with this new skills and being you know like the e version of ABA I can't imagine it doing anything harmful to their child it, it's nothing but exponential growth for us to see her now it is it just blows us away when we call her our little miracle child because um, in seven months time she has just blossomed into this normal functioning child and suddenly we joke about it all the time like suddenly we have twins if you're even thinking about doing it do it because the absolute worst thing you can do is do nothing at all and even if you use this program and it's just a single mom or a single dad working in the evenings with their child this program is going to benefit them it's it's going to show you where they are it's going to show you where they need to go and it's going to show you what skills and how to get there it is an online book on how to help recover your child. Welcome back to Autism Live. This week, our topic was making progress. So I want to get back on track here and talk about how we can make more progress. Now, a couple of days ago, we asked you guys, what do you wish you could make progress on, right? Um, and there were a bunch of different things that you guys wrote in. I, I want to talk about a, a couple in particular. Somebody wrote in SIB, which stands for self-injurious behavior. Now, uh, I don't know whether the person was saying that they're injuring themselves or that their child is injuring themselves but this is a very serious topic and we have to take it very seriously that um, when there is an outward display of frustration and that you know we see in older kids that they're cutting um, in younger kids we can see things like punching themselves in the face um, we can see them you know whether it's intentional for them to hurt themselves but kids who peel the skin on their hands or their legs or their knees or whatever um, and you know go from there. There are so many different things that a child can do. Now, I know that my son participated in self-injurious behavior when he was very little. He would bang his head on the kitchen floor. And and he would go into the kitchen to do it um, because he, the rest of the house was carpeted and he couldn't get enough of a, you know, a bang to do it. First of all, we have to talk about the fact that there are many different reasons why someone would engage in self-injurious behavior and we cannot assume that we know what the answer is and um you know for some people there is a paycheck in the actual doing of the self-injurious behavior i know that's really hard for us to understand and get a grip on but you know kids who cut and hide it um, we, we know sometimes that there, that there is a paycheck, that the pain of it um, feels a certain way and, and that it is relieving of other pain. Uh, and, if, and if that's too far outside the realm of, of what you can understand, think about if you injure yourself and you get a massage and there's some pain associated with the massage that alleviates other pain. I had a headache the other day and, and I was massaging the back of my neck and having my husband massage the back of my neck. And I said, you got to really dig in there till it hurts. And he said, but you're already in pain. And I said, yes, but it will help to relieve it. Um, for kids who teeth, uh, I can remember the pain of 
when I had my wisdom teeth that were coming in, I was in graduate school and I would find hard things to chew on in between class. I mean, at one point I remember chewing on a spoon because it hurt so bad, the teeth coming in that I wanted to chew on something hard. It was painful. Um, but that pain for a couple of seconds relieved the other pain. We, we see examples of kids who are um, hitting their heads against things because they have a headache. And, and for just that second that they hit their head, it relieves the pain for just a second. It's very uncomfortable to talk about, right? It makes you feel like, oh, that's horrible to create, create pain to take away other pain. It's just horrible, but it's even worse for the person who's in it. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why people engage in self-injurious behavior. It isn't the most common though. Um, to be quite honest with you, what we hear from a lot of people is that self-injurious behavior a lot of times has an attention component to it um, or an escape component because they're trying to get out of something. It creates attention and then they get out of doing whatever the other thing was. That was certainly the case with my son when he was hitting his head against the kitchen floor. I would put a demand on him. It was something that he wouldn't want to do. So he would trounce himself into the kitchen floor and he would start banging his head on the floor until he would cry. And I would come in and, you know, and pick him up and give him a whole bunch of attention. And by the way, he got out of whatever the thing was that I was putting the demand on, which might have been as, as simple as, you know, we have to put your shoes on so that we can go someplace you want to go, that he didn't have enough receptive language to understand. The, the main thing with self-injurious behavior, though, is you, you have to get professional help. Thinking that you can take it on by yourself is potentially just so dangerous for yourself and the child or the adult that's doing it, the teenager that's doing it. You really, it's time to raise a flag and ask for professional help. Uh, a good BCBA can help you if, and you can call around and say to people, look, this is how much I have to afford to pay. I'm in dire straits. They may know of some funding in the place that you're in so that you can get some help. There are agencies that will provide help. You know, ask. You, you, you just have to ask. And if you, if you find a BCBA that can work and they can't help you to get a funding source, that is the kind of thing that you can ask for an emergency grant from Autism Care and Treatment Today. You can go to their website, act-today.org. There is a place where you can fill out the emergency grant. They are only open for regular grants four times a year, but you can fill out a, uh, a thing for an emergency grant any time of year. Now, that will take a little bit of time, and I really want to urge you to try to get help quicker than that, but it, that's a last-ditch effort, something that you can do. But you really shouldn't be trying to do it on your own. And I will tell you, too, that there is great help for self-injurious behavior if you get that help and support. And, and it isn't just for that help and that support that's effective isn't just for individuals on the autism spectrum. If you have a teenager who has anorexia or bulimia or something like that, I would put that under the heading of self-injurious behavior as well. Get the help. Don't wait. You know, if you need something to spur you on, go online and look at some of the outcomes and what parents who didn't get help are have to say after the fact when there's a tragedy, right? So, so get that help and support um, as quickly as you can. Reach out and ask for help, but you need to get that support. Okay, and then another question that was asked a great deal was about toileting. 
that you'd like to see some progress in toileting. Oddly enough, I mentioned toileting at the top of the show when we were doing the jargon of the day, and I mentioned that uh, Fox and Azrin is, you know, the accepted method, uh, and you can Google that. There are books written on Fox and Azrin. It's another case where you can ask for help with toileting if you're having long-term problems with toileting. I, I would tell you, though, quite honestly, that if you read about Fox and Azrin, if you watch some of the videos that we've done here on the show, with the vast majority of individuals, I think that will help you to see progress with toileting. But one of the different people who wrote in said, um, I, I really, I'm hopeful, but my boys, 11 and 4, just can't sense the need yet, or that they've already gone and that they're praying for the day that that comes through. I would tell you that if anytime we're teaching something and it isn't working, we got to take a step back, right? Uh, what I love about BCBAs is that they will tell you it's never the child's fault. It is never the child's fault. Uh, the, there may be an extenuating circumstance that's preventing the teaching from happening. We have to rule that out, right? Or it may be that our teaching methods aren't working correctly, and we have to reevaluate that. But especially for the 11-year-old, I don't think it's all that uncommon that a 4-year-old could still have trouble identifying the feeling of, I need to go, or that I just went. Um, but you know, we're getting into that age where you might want to ask some professional medical help at that point. And certainly with the 11-year-old, before you implemented any huge behavioral intervention for an 11-year-old who still isn't sex successfully able to toilet, I think you pretty much have to rule out, is there something medically that's going on? Uh, I can think of one case in particular where a family just was about to lose their minds with a young girl who just couldn't get the toileting, like clearly had an understanding of I'm supposed to go on the toilet, but couldn't feel it, couldn't hold it, couldn't do it, and took her um, to be looked at by a medical doctor and through a series of tests discovered that her bladder had severe issues and that what they were asking her to do, she just wasn't capable of doing. Now, there were exercises that they could do with her and there was a certain amount of time that, you know, they waited and then rechecked and, and, and some of it was just that the bladder, the floor of the bladder just hadn't fully matured. And, you know, that it was just something that had happened from birth. We don't want to put our kids in a situation where we're asking them to do something that they physically aren't capable of doing. And, and I don't mean to be, you know, negative now about it, that they can't get to the point where they're, you know, because I think in the vast majority of cases, once you get that medical diagnosis of, oh, you know, this is why, this is what's impeding the progress of teaching this, then you can work on other things medically. Um, sometimes it's a procedure, sometimes it's just an exercise that needs to be done. Um, sometimes it just needs some time to heal. Sometimes it needs medication. But, you know, then you can go back and teach the lesson with the tools, the Fox and Azrin tools, and be successful. So anytime, I, I think it's perfectly acceptable. We don't want to all run out and pay for expensive tests on three- and four-year-olds to see if, you know, they have some kind of nerve damage or something where they're not feeling things. We, we can start by doing a very positive reinforcement for toileting and see if we make progress. But if a lot of time passes and you're not seeing some progress, then you got to kind of backtrack and you got to, and certainly with an 11 year old, I would urge you to make sure that there's no medical impediment that's preventing that toileting from happening. 
Um, and and also, if you're working with an ABA um, provider, and I hope that you are, if you've got two that are on the on the spectrum, 11 and 4, I hope that there's an ABA provider. And in that case, there's a BCBA. And, and hopefully, they're looking at it, too, and saying, this is the problem that we're having. What I'm especially concerned about is that we not assume that the 11-year-old and the 4-year-old are having the same problem, because they might not. Right? Um, the 11-year-old might be having a problem that is physiological in nature, and the 4-year-old might just need uh, a little bit more effort and work that, as a parent, I would not think anything of you feeling a little bit like you don't want to follow through with the lesson with the 4-year-old because it didn't work with the 11-year-old, right? But it may just be that you need to tinker a little bit with what your rewards are uh, so that the 4-year-old gets it, which you know, may also in turn help the 11-year-old to get it, right? So I hope and pray for you too, because I know that you're saying that you're praying that that comes through, but I hope that um, you'll take some action and see if you can't get some support from a BCBA and possibly having an 11-year-old looked at by a medical professional. Uh, and I also want to point out too that um, when uh, one of our viewers saw that, um, he wrote in and said that his first physical therapist told his parents that he would never be using the toilet and that he is now. So I, I, we don't give up on anybody, right? Sometimes there are extra physical constraints that can prevent something uh, from happening in the timetable that we thought it was going to, but then we just go back and go, how are we going to solve this problem? How are we going to do this? Uh, my son used to love the movie Apollo 13 when he was little, and one of my favorite, and so I had to watch it a lot, right? <laughs> and one of my favorite parts is, you know, here they are in this dying spaceship, and they got all these things going wrong, and we don't know if we're going to get them home safely. It's just, you know, it's a modern day odyssey. How are we going to get them home? And the scientists, they take everything that is available on the ship and they pile it on the table and they say, okay, guys, figure out how to make an air filter out of these things. This has to fit this, figure it out. Here's what you have at your disposal. And they do. Sometimes I feel like that's what it's like being an autism parent. You know, we go, all right, well, this is what I have at my disposal. How am I going to make this work? Um, and sometimes you have to go back to the drawing board and look around the room and go, okay, what else do I have at my disposal? So we don't give up though. We don't give up. We never give up. Uh, all right. I, I just recently got to see the movie, um, uh, what's the Sandra Bullock movie? Help me, Emily. That's, uh, the big, um, up for an Oscar. Gra Gravity. Uh, yes. And uh, so I got to see that. And, you know, same thing. We, you know, we, we need to persevere and it's amazing. Uh, definitely check that film out. Okay. We're going to take another break and then we're going to be back to finish out the show and look at some of the other things that you guys have written in. Stick with us. The Institute for Behavioral Training provides courses in applied behavior analysis for the treatment of autism. Access IBTE learning videos on the move and learn at your own pace. I'm going to talk a little bit about intensity. IBTE learning makes any location your classroom on the go. So our objectives for today are to really learn what is autism and how is it diagnosed. Get professional guidance with IBT face-to-face -face training. IBT face-to-face -face training courses prepare you to effectively implement ABA-based interventions. Choose between small group and one-to-one -one instruction. 
earn BCBA supervision hours via one-to-one -one video conferencing. So I had a chance to review your BIP today. You know what, it looked really good. You did a good job with that. IBT, continuing education courses. Earn credit through webinars, conferences, article reviews, and e-learning videos. You can learn more at ibehavioraltraining.com. IBT, 360 degrees of ABA training. Welcome back. We want to give you an update on another story that's been in the news a great deal. Avante Aquendo went missing from his school last October in New York City. And recently his remains were found and they have released the medical examiner's findings as to the manner of his death. I know that there were some questions. Uh, the body was found in water. And I think we were all expecting that we would find out that he died of drowning. And yet the New York City Medical Examiner's Office, as reported in the Wall Street Journal, they are saying that the cause and manner of death of the 14-year-old autistic boy who was missing cannot be determined. Uh, that makes me sad in ways that I can't even begin to describe. The, the family's lawyer has filed a notice of claim, which is the first step in suing the city. And of course, I've been very vocal on this show that I, you know, my words to the family, I'm so sorry for your loss. And I thank you for suing them. And I hope you sue them until it hurts, until it hurts them. Uh, because this should not have happened to your child and nothing that any of us can say or do and no amount of money can bring that child back. But if, but if, if we can get enough people to understand how valuable our children are, then maybe somebody will do something different next time. And unfortunately, that's, that's all we have to hope for in that case. Uh, bless those poor people and what they have had to go through the media circus that they've had to go through while trying to find their child. Unbelievable, unimaginable. Uh, but we've been talking about making progress and how we would like to see progress, what areas we would like to see progress on in our lives. Uh, many people uh, wrote in to us on Tuesday to talk about that. Um, I, I just want to talk about, we had somebody who wrote in um, yesterday when we did Ask Dr. Doreen saying, why can't the world adapt more to our children? And I think along the same line, somebody wrote in and said that progress uh, determines on how people treat and interact with special needs children. Progress can only be made if everyone that surrounds your child treats the child in a familiar fashion uh, to the child's known ritual. Progress is tuning everything out to stop and listen to your semi to nonverbal child's current needs. Everyone has to be aware speaking to a child on the spectrum in a negative way will only get negative results. Speak to others the way you like to be spoken to. And the problem is that a lot of people don't even care to listen. It's a lot of things that are included in there. And I, and I want to say that it is important that we educate the world on how to speak positively to our children and to everyone else around, obviously. It, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. exists in every religion and every culture around the world, and yet it's the hardest thing to practice, right? Obviously, because there's so much difficulty in doing it. But um, it is important that we 
set the example and listen to our children who are on the autism spectrum. It's hard some days. I, I will attest that it's really, really hard to meet our children where they are. And, and you know, I, 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 I encounter that myself on a daily basis and my child's doing really well. And I, I'm grateful for that and I ponder how people who have multiple children and who are greatly affected and haven't had access to good quality ABA, it's a tough road. It's a tough road. And I got to tell you, I feel for you. I want to fight for you to be able to get those services to make it better, to make that progress. And part of that, when we do ABA, a part of ABA is helping our children to be able to cope with people who can't meet us halfway. And I, and I have to say that while it tears my ticket a little bit that we have to take the time to teach our kids that, um, it's important. It's important to their happiness and to them progressing. I've said before on the show that, you know, one of the deficits in autism that uh, will help to lead to a diagnosis is having a deficit in the area of perspective taking, not being able to take another person's point of view. It's one of the lessons that quality ABA will teach your child. And my son has had many lessons about being able to take other people's perspectives. And I'm honest about the fact that some days he's much better at doing it than I am. And I make apologies to him all the time for the people in his life who don't do it as well as he does. But would the answer have been for me to not have had him learn that? I don't think so. I don't think so, because the world is a better place because he's so good at it when he does it. There are still times that he needs some work on it, too. Look, he's not perfect. Uh, he's 10, about to be 11. Um, but, you know, I, I want him to learn these things because they help him to cope. So I agree with you that people should learn how to talk to our children, but we also I believe, need to meet them on the other way and need to help our children to know how to communicate with them um, and how to be compassionate when they don't take perspective and how to teach other people to learn to take perspective. Um, that's hard. That's really, really hard. But um, I, I see that in my son that when he understands that somebody is not taking his perspective, he has more compassion for them than they do for him. And that's not an easy thing to, to deal with, and yet he shoulders it really well. The, two years ago, there was a, a he had to do a, a speech in class with another student, and the other student complained about working with him endlessly, endlessly. And he was one of the top performers in his neurotypical class. And he complained about, oh, you know, Jem wants to do it this way. And Jem's being difficult about this. And Jem's doing that. And I was there when they did the presentation. And my son kept trying to help. And the other boy was told, you have to let Jem hold on to the diorama. And you have to let him get a word in edgewise. And the boy wasn't doing it. And eventually, my son gave up. And it really made me heart sick. And we, after we left the classroom, we were going back to the car. I said, you know, you can't let people steamroll you like that. You just can't do that. He was told that he had to let you hold it, and you gave up after a while. And he said, well, Mom, you know, it's really important to him to be able to be in charge. So I just decided to let him be because it's not as important to me. And there's your perspective taking. Um, 
And I said, so you're not bothered by the fact that he didn't let you hold it? He goes, no, you know, I got to do what I wanted to on it. And I figured I would just let him. It wasn't a big deal to me. There's other things that are more important to me. Those are tools. Those are tools for a happy and successful life. So I do think we want to instill those things in our kids when we can. And, I, and they didn't start instilling that in my child when he was verbal. They started instilling that in him when he was nonverbal. So I just want to throw that out there as a message of hope that um, progress can be made um, on both ends of it. And I think it's essential that we do on both ends of it. Uh, in any case, we are out of time. The week is over. And I want to thank you guys for being here with me and um, please continue the conversation this Saturday we are going to be at the Fullerton Cares Mardi Gras it is being hosted by Fullerton Cares wonderful event with a great deal of other people but Autism Live will be there and if you're in the Orange County area on Saturday afternoon I hope you'll join us there uh, and I will be putting some pictures up as we do that and giving people an opportunity to be on camera to be on Autism Live so please participate with that and don't forget that this Saturday also is the Home Depot kid craft because it is the first Saturday of the month. So if you don't have other plans, go to the Home Depot and participate in the craft. Your kids will enjoy it. It's a free, great outing. We're out of time next week. Really exciting topics that can't wait to share with you. So make sure that you tune back in. We'll be back Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific time. That's 1 p.m. Eastern time. Please do the math wherever you are in the world. And, and remember to give your kiddos a hug from me. Bye-bye for now.